Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this time of worship together. And we pray, Lord, that you would open your word to us now, that you would plant deep within us what you have for us this day, and that through your word we might be more like Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. People love a good story. Relatable characters, a gripping plot, challenges to overcome. Stories can give us hope and encouragement. I recently finished reading Charles Dickens' great story, A Christmas Carol. And the whole time I was reading it, I had a smile on my face. And by the end of it, I felt so much better about life and the world. That's the power that stories can have on us. People love a good story. And the book we're going to look at over the next five weeks, the book of Ruth, is a great story. It's a story about ordinary people doing ordinary things in rather ordinary ways. And the whole time that all this ordinary stuff is going on, an extraordinary God is working behind the scenes to bring about an extraordinary outcome. I don't often have a, an application point in an introduction, but I want to briefly spend a minute on what I just said. Because Ruth is absolutely a book about ordinary people. There is no mention of the miraculous. There are no prophets. There's no great priest. Just regular folks living their regular lives. What a helpful thing for us to keep in mind today. We live in a culture where people feel desperate for the new and the shiny and the exciting. We often feel like we're not even really living our lives unless it's filled with all kinds of exciting moments. And that includes our life of faith. We often feel that God is only there during the mountaintop moments. He's only there in the miraculous and the heart-pounding moments of religious fervor. The book of Ruth does away with that assumption. In Ruth, God is not found in the miraculous at all, but in the day-to-day of regular life. There's no blinding light, no angel from heaven, no raising of the dead, but the constant, loving, gracious presence of God is there throughout the whole book. Keep that in mind in those moments when you feel like life and faith aren't all they're cracked up to be. They're not gripping you or as exciting as they could be. Keep that in mind if you wonder if God sees you in the mundane moments of the day of cleaning the house and going to work and doing the dishes. The God we meet in Ruth is the God of ordinary moments and ordinary times and ordinary people. Part of the reason we are drawn to a book like Ruth, is that it is such a great story. It's filled with love and loyalty and hope and courage and redemption and faithfulness. I mean, who who wouldn't want to read a story with all of that? The reality is we see basically none of that in our passage today. Rather, today is about being honest about the situation at the start of the story. Rather than love and faithfulness, what we find in verses 1 through 5 is disobedience and faithlessness. 
Every good story has its challenges, and we see the problem in Ruth right at the beginning. Bad choices and their consequences. Stemming from the problem of where people put their trust. Having the wrong answer to the question, where does our hope lie? And we see that in the culture of the time, in the choices of Elimelech, and in the choice of Naomi. Let's dive into this great story. You can open up your study book or follow along with the reading in your bulletin. If you don't have a study book, I think we still have some at the table in the uh, fellowship hall there. You can quickly run and grab one. I won't be offended by people getting up and walking around. That's uh, just fine. So please do grab one if you don't have one. Ruth begins with the words, in the days when the judges ruled. It's a very telling half sentence. Rather than being the biblical equivalent of once upon a time, this statement is not just placing the story in a historical context, but in a theological one. You see, the days when the judges ruled should pull our minds back one book of the Bible, to the book of Judges. It was during this time period that the events we're going to read about occurred. And those of you who have read the book of Judges know that it was not exactly a great time to be alive. The book details how a nation that was called by God to be a holy people, set apart to reveal the blessings and goodness of God to the world, repeatedly fell into behaving as if they didn't know God at all. Throughout this period, the people would rebel and things would go poorly. They would repent and God would raise up a judge or judges and things would get set right. But sure enough, once things get going well again, the people rebel again. They go back to their godless ways, acting just the way they were before. Even some of the judges, especially those towards the end of the book, are less than savory characters. The time period can be summed up by the refrain that's heard throughout the book in which supplies its very last words. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the culture in which Ruth is set. From the very first line, the author of Ruth tells us that this story is taking place in a time when no one sought after God and everyone believed they could live however they felt was best. No one could tell them that their actions were wrong because each person was a king unto themselves and the place of hope would be found in me, in myself. Perhaps that description sounds somewhat familiar to some of us. Many of the things that I just listed there are actually championed today. We are told that the only good society is the one where each person can be a king or queen unto themselves, answerable only to themselves and free to decide the best way to live. I decide what's best for my life and no one else can tell me otherwise. And so our decisions become based on self-interest, and God has no part in how we make them. And the same is true for many Christians. We make decisions as if God is not involved in the day-to-day ordinariness of our lives. The wonderful Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid points out, we act as if 
we are the sovereign of our own lives, making the choices that seem best in our eyes without reference to God. Many bear the label Christian, yet their Christianity has no impact on life-defining decisions. By making sure the audience knows when the story of Ruth is set, the author is subtly setting up the question, who do we trust in? Who is the king of our life? Do we do whatever is right in our own eyes, or do we look to God in helping us make the decisions we need to make in the ordinary moments of our life? Truth is that making ordinary decisions without God can have a profound impact on the direction of our lives. And so before we, need, we make them, we need to ask God to direct our days and our steps. Maybe even beginning each day with a simple prayer, Lord, would you direct me today? Would you help me to make decisions that honor you? That's the first way we see the problem in the book of Ruth. Rather than trusting in and following the Lord, the culture of the time trusted in themselves, creating a time of -of out-of-control sin and social chaos. We see the influence of that in Elimelech's decision. We read in verses 1 and 2 that Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and his sons Malin and Killian were from the town of Bethlehem in Judah. At this time... Bethlehem was a rather ordinary town. It wasn't until years later that would have the extraordinary moment of the virgin birth of Jesus. Ironically enough, Bethlehem means house of bread. And yet we are told that famine has come to the town. The house of bread had none for its people. In response, Elimelech, whose name ironically again means God is my king, decides to take his family from Bethlehem to the land of Moab. Now, on the surface, this seems like a wise decision. We could have great sympathy for Elimelech. His family has no food. The land's not producing any, so why stay there? It would seem like Moab is a reasonable choice. The alternative would be shirking his duty as a husband and father to help provide for his family. In reality, though, Elimelech's decision speaks to the belief that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And make no mistake, friends, the land of Moab was the other side of the fence for an Israelite. You see, Israel and Moab had a long and unpleasant history with each other. There are numerous accounts in the Old Testament of the animosity between Israel and Moab, including Genesis 19, Numbers 22 through 25, and Judges 3. But by way of summary, let's hear from Deuteronomy 23. We read, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Pretty final judgment right there. And that judgment came because rather than helping the Israelites, the Moabites sought to curse them, to defeat them in battle and drive them away from the land that the Lord had promised to Israel. That is the land that Elimelech has chosen to go to. 
It's as if he's saying, well, I know God said not to deal with the, the Moabites, but, but they've got food there. So rather than staying here, I'm going to go to the specific place that God told me never to go to. So what seems like a reasonable decision on the surface is actually an act of rebellion against the stated will of God. We see this when we remember God's promise to Israel when they entered the promised land where Elimelech lived. That if they followed God, he would bless them and provide for them. Even when they sinned against God, if they would repent, God would have mercy and care for them again. Daniel Block tells us that Elimelech designed his own solution instead of calling on God for mercy and repenting of the sins that plagued the nation during the dark days of the judges. Elimelech embodied the problem that was so widespread during this time. He did what was right in his own eyes, acting as if he was a king unto himself and ignoring the expressed command of God because, after all, he knew better. He saw with his eyes that Moab had what he wanted. And so rather than act in faith that God would provide for his faithful people, Elimelech acted out of the flesh and chose Moab over God. He chose the easy way rather than the faithful way. He chose the land of compromise rather than the land of promise. Now the application here isn't don't try to get food if you're starving. Just trust the Lord. That's a misapplication. Rather, Elimelech's decision reveals the condition of his heart. It reveals that perhaps he didn't quite believe what his name meant, that God is his king. Once again, Ian Duguid's words are helpful to us. The roads we choose for ourselves often make our deepest heart commitments plain for all to see. Elimelech's decision revealed that he didn't trust God. He didn't believe in him. And this can happen to any one of us. Trusting in ourselves instead of God, even to the extent of breaking God's expressed will, making decisions out of self-interest rather than self-giving love, seeing people as obstacles to our fame and fortune rather than a fellow person created in the image of God. Not believing that God will provide us with the life that we so desire, so I better go and do it for myself, no matter what it takes, even if it means lying a little bit and cheating a little bit and stealing a little bit. And as we do those things, all it does is reveal who is truly the king in our life. For as we are willing to break the expressed will of God to achieve a certain end, what becomes clear is that end is our God. That end is our king. How do we make decisions? Who do we trust in when it comes time to make a decision? Are we willing to break the outright commands of God thinking that, well, I need to get that life. I need to get that thing. I need this, so I'm going to go do it. 
The way we answer those questions does reveal who is king in our life. And if we are Christians, if we claim that title, then the throne of our heart is meant to be occupied by one person and one person alone. And the promise of that king, of Jesus, is that he knows what's best for us. And that if we follow in his will, it leads to our good. That our decisions are meant to be formed on his will, on how he would have us live. That our actions are meant to be formed by the love that we claim to have for Christ. And that as we remain with him, he will lead us on for our good. The culture of Ruth's time showed us that people were trusting in themselves rather than God. And Elimelech's decision just underscores that point for us. We also see that people have a propensity to remain in our sin rather than turning back in repentance. Let's turn our attention to Naomi. We're told in verse 1 that Elimelech planned on sojourning in Moab, meaning he saw the move as temporary, staying long enough to get what he needed and then hustling back to uh, to Babylon, (laughs) Bethlehem. (laughs) Verse 2, though, tells us rather than sojourning, he remained in Moab. And then Elimelech's move turns out to be a little more permanent than he bargained for. He dies. Rather than take the opportunity to head home, verse 4 tells us that Naomi and her boys stay for 10 years. If you stay somewhere for 10 years, you cannot qualify that as a temporary move. I don't care how long you've been alive for. That's a pretty permanent move. And isn't that just the way things work when we disobey God? Oh, well, I'll just, I'll just tell this one white lie. Nobody will get hurt. and I'll, I'll, I won't do it again. This will be the last time. Or, well, I'll just, I'll just fudge these numbers on my tax return a little bit. And uh, I mean, uh, it's for me anyways. It'll, it doesn't hurt anyone. I won't do it again. It's always our intention to sojourn in sin. But the move always ends up being more permanent and more damaging than we pictured. Naomi could have realized the error of her husband's decision. She could have said, rather than staying in the land of compromise, I'll repent and return to the land of promise, the land of my people and my God. Rather than doing that, she hunkers down, doubling down on Elimelech's sin by remaining in it. We don't have time to get into it today, but her sons Malin and Killian further compound the problem by marrying Moabite women, something that was expressly forbidden in Deuteronomy 7. If you want to know more about that, that's your excuse to come out Thursday night when we can dive in more to this. I hadn't planned on making that plug, but that worked out all right. (laughs) Naomi and her boys are a bit like the family who's driving along one day. Good old dad's behind the wheel. It's family road trip time. Who doesn't love family road trips? I actually do, to be honest. My, my family likes them, at least for now. Maybe when my kids get older, who knows. But They're driving along, and dad decides, you know what? I know a great shortcut. Off he goes. Dad's putting along, 
and things start getting less and less familiar. Mom realizes what's happening. Johnny and Susie and Rover in the back seat realize what's happening. But Dad keeps going. The tension starts to rise in the car because everyone's clued in that Dad's shortcut has gotten them lost in the middle of nowhere, but there is no way that dear old Dad is turning around. He's committed to the wrong path, and he is sticking with it right to the end. All the while, admitting he had gotten them on the wrong track, turning around and saying, you know what, guys? I messed that one up. <laughs> Turning the car around, driving back to the right road. Would have been better for everyone. Would have been better for him, the kids. Sure, you went a little way out of the way there, but you're heading in the right direction now. That's the choice that sat before Naomi. But rather than turning around, she sticks out the plane of compromise. She takes that road right to the very end, and it ends in near disaster. Verse 5, we read, Both Malin and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She is nearly all alone in a land she was never supposed to be in, because she would not repent and turn around to the land of promise. And all because once entered upon to continue in deepened disobedience is often the smoother path. Somehow it seems easier to bear the continued emptiness than to confess of our pursuit of fullness in the wrong place. How many of us do the exact same thing? We remain in our sin because we know we've trusted in ourselves, but we can't bear the pain or the embarrassment or whatever it is to admit that we've sinned. How many of us remain estranged from loved ones because we can't ask for forgiveness or extend it? How many of us remain estranged from our God because we can't bear the perceived pain of confessing sin so that we might be brought back by Jesus into relationship with our Father. Yet that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He carried the weight and pain of our sin so that we wouldn't have to anymore. And so those roads are before us. The perceived shortcut filled with compromise after compromise that leads nowhere but a spiritual dead end. Or the road of repentance that Jesus paved for us. Bringing us back to him so that we might have life and promise. Truly the picture of Ruth 1, 1 through 5 is a bleak one. Filled with people choosing their own way setting themselves up as kings and queens of their lives rather than submitting to the king of all. But even in this bleakness, grace makes its way onto the scene. Because in verse 6, a whisper of hope can be heard. Don't bother looking down, it's not included in your bulletin. 
If I planned it out better, I would have put it there. Stripped of all she had, Naomi hears a rumor that food has returned to the once empty house of bread. That in Bethlehem, life can be found. Isn't that just how grace enters into our lives? Stripped of all that we have trusted in, we begin to hear a rumor of something greater. A rumor of Jesus. That there is a place where grace and mercy and peace is found. A rumor that in Bethlehem, grace has come. Is in Bethlehem, grace took on flesh and dwelt among us. Offering us forgiveness. Ignoring (laughs) our constant ignoring of his call and his will for us. And leading us on the path to the cross where by his grace, Jesus would pay the price for all of us. Even though we have stubbornly tried to stay on the shortcut, no matter how long we've been gone for. When we are ready to turn around, there he is waiting to set us back on the road to life. That is what grace is all about. More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the road of promise. Thank you for not holding, us, holding it against us that we so stubbornly choose the shortcuts so many times. Pray, Lord, that you would so form our hearts that we would seek after Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit, you would constantly pull us back to him and that we would not forget your grace and your love and your mercy. We thank you, Father, for your Son, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.